Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will never stop learning and never stop laughing. We're awesome. (laughs) That's the moral of the story. Thank you, Beth. (laughs) NSL Double Talk featuring Chris Pavone and Christina Alger. Their topic today is putting pen to paper. Chris is the author of three national best-selling thrillers, The Expats, which won both the Edgar and Anthony Awards for the best first novel and is being developed by CBS Films, The Accident, another New York Times bestseller, and most recently, The Travelers, an indie next bestseller that has been optioned by DreamWorks. Chris graduated from Cornell, worked as a book editor for nearly two decades, and at age 40, moved to Luxembourg, where he started writing his first novel. A graduate of Harvard College and NYU Law School, Christina Elger worked as a financial analyst and a corporate attorney before becoming an author. Her books include The Darlings, This Was Not the Plan, The Banker's Wife, and most recently, Girls Like Us. We are so excited to welcome Chris and Christina to NSL Double Talk. Christina, it's so good to be with you today. <laughs> Thank you for being here. You and me are both full-time thriller writers now, but we both had other professions before embarking on this one. What brought you to this spot? That is a good question. I mean, I think there are two answers. One is that I took a very circuitous, windy road to getting here. And the other is I sort of feel like I've come full circle and gone back to where I started. So I was an English major in college. I've always been a reader. I've always been a thriller reader. And then I was a senior in college. My dad passed away and I had the crazy idea that I should make money when I left school and also move back to New York so I could be close to my mom. And there was a drop box for Goldman Sachs resumes at the end of my hallway. And I dropped my resume in there and ended up at Goldman Sachs, which was a really strange place for me after years of studying pre-1600 Shakespearean literature. So anyway, that's where I ended up. And I spent 12 years in finance. And then I went to law school and sort of finance adjacent law. And I always read for fun. It was sort of my escape and um, my respite from my job. And I wrote my first novel when I was working as a lawyer. And it's sort of a legal thriller. So that's how I kind of segued back into the world of writing, but it was a strange and winding path to get there. Did you find that being an English major was useful or relevant to becoming the type of novel? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To anything? No. Um, Yes. I mean, of course, it made me love to read and that's helpful in law. It's helpful, I think, in anything you do. I always wanted to go back there. I always came back from work and I needed to read to unwind. and, And so I started writing sort of much for the same reason. It's always been kind of my escape So what about you? You started in publishing. I was. I don't really understand how we're supposed to figure out what to do with our lives when the schedule demands that we do. And when I graduated from college, I was 20 years old and I needed a job. And I don't, now that I'm 52, I can't imagine how any 20-year-olds, much less 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds can figure out how they're going to spend 
50 years of a work life. And I decided I wanted to work in publishing on really scant information. I really didn't know anything. I didn't know anybody in the business. My parents are New York City public school teachers. They didn't know anybody who was in publishing. I don't remember where I got the idea that I wanted to work in publishing. I knew that one day I wanted to write a novel, but I also knew that I didn't want to have the type of struggling novelist career that looked so unappealing of trying to get published in little journals and teaching creative writing at colleges in the middle of nowhere and just having all my eggs in this basket where if it didn't pan out, I would turn out to be a middle-aged person whose career didn't pan out. I didn't want that. So I decided instead of trying to be a writer from the get-go, I would work in publishing. I really liked books. I was not an English major. I was a government major. But I really loved reading and I wanted to work in the world of ideas and publishing. And I got one crappy job and then another crappy job. And then I found myself when I was 23 years old working at Doubleday as a junior copy editor. And that was the first time I'd ever really read commercial fiction. That, you know, reading when you're a teenager and a a young adult, somebody in college who's reading serious books, you don't read New York Times bestsellers. I never really cracked any of these books until I was working in the business. And it was such a revelation to me that there was this type of reading that wasn't that hard, that was there just to be enjoyable, and that it also kept the lights on and paid the bills. Um, But still, I didn't want to launch into a writing career until I was good and ready. And so I had a bunch of jobs in publishing, and I was a nonfiction editor, an acquiring editor, and then eventually an associate publisher in my late 30s, which is when I realized that I was never going to be really good at running a business or managing people, and that I recognized this as a sort of failure to grow up and to be a grown-up capitalist and to do this thing that all businesses need you to do, which is run a business. I was never going to do that. So if I was ever going to write, now is the time to do it because I'd come to the end of being confident in my ability to have this career, so I quit. And I started writing, but I started ghostwriting. And I did that for a year because it earned me money and I needed that. And then my wife got a job in Luxembourg and we moved abroad. And that's where I started writing what became my first novel, The Expats. That sounds very organized and adult, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, which part was organized? I mean, the the adult part, I guess, was, was, I don't know, was any of it an adult part? It's a very not an adult thing to do, I think, what we do for a living. That's true. There's, it's very indulgent in a way that we get to do the thing that we want to do and sort of not necessarily pay attention that much to the consequences of it, that we're putting something out there and hoping that people come to it. And obviously we need to go out and do certain things to help people come to it, but it's still, we sit by ourselves and it's the product of our own imaginations, which is a lot of pressure on what we can come up with and also a lot of, uh, I don't know, irresponsibility. Isn't it a little bit irresponsible? Oh, yes, wildly. But we write commercial fictions. That seems slightly less irresponsible, which you don't read. Do you read it now? I do. I mean, I didn't until I was in my early 20s, but it's been a while now. And I read a lot of commercial fiction. When you decided to try to write your first novel, did you know that what you wanted to write was a thriller? Or did that genre present itself later? Or No one thought my first book was a thriller except uh-huh. for me. I, I always, people always say when I wrote The Banker's Wife, oh, you know, you've changed genres. And I say, have I? I don't know. I thought I wrote a thriller, but I guess I didn't. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, I always read 
thrillers, I was not nearly as erudite as you were. So my father read thrillers, like legal thrillers and really mass market stuff. And he started me on that really young. So I was reading, you know, Grisham and Tom Clancy and all that kind of thing when I was very, probably inappropriately young for that subject matter. But anyway, I wanted to read that because that's what my dad liked to read. And so that was always, you know, what I read for fun. And so when I started writing The Darlings, which was about a family-run hedge fund that collapses in the middle of the financial crisis, I thought it was a thriller. And it was sort of somewhere between a thriller and a family drama, I guess. And so when I wrote The Banker's Wife, I said, okay, I'm going to really write a proper thriller now that no one's confused about what genre it ends up in. But yes, I mean, thrillers are what I like to read. So I always thought that's what I would end up writing. And is it still what you like to read? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I try when I'm actually in the throes of writing a book, I try and stay away from them a little bit because I tend to find that it influences my own writing when I read a writer that I really like and is close enough to the genre that I write in. I don't want to end up imitating their voice sort of without knowing that I'm doing so. So I try and read nonfiction. I read a lot of true crime. um, And then I read literary fiction. And then when I'm sort of in an off cycle and I'm on book tour or whatever, I then I read mostly thrillers. So what about you? Uh, I read exclusively fiction in book form. My nonfiction comes from newspapers and magazines, but if I'm reading a book, it's a novel, and it's either a literary novel or a mystery or a thriller. I don't subscribe to the theory that reading other people while I'm writing will influence my writing, or at least will influence it in a negative way. What I'm constantly looking for when I'm writing are new ideas, Mm -hmm. new ideas for the plot. And I find that the more fiction of any sort I consume while I'm writing, whether it's novels or television shows or movies, those other things spark ideas for me about what can happen in my book. It's especially the case with plots. I never find myself wanting to imitate a plot, but reading somebody else's plot twist often generates my own Mm -hmm. ideas about what to do. So I consume a tremendous volume of fiction and I never stop. Um, I toggle back and forth between literary and commercial. I also toggle back and forth between things that I choose to read for myself and things that have been thrust upon me by others. A lot of books enter my household for me that I didn't choose. And although I like some of those, I also sort of resent it sometimes. I want to be able to choose the things that I want to read and not have those choices be made simply because somebody I know sent me a manuscript. Right. Yeah. No, I should say I end up reading a lot of thrillers just by default because that's, you know, what I get for blurbs and that kind of thing. So when I pick up a book, sometimes I try and push myself into genres that I wouldn't ordinarily read because I'm reading thrillers just because I happen to be a thriller writer. Would you write in a different genre? No, I don't think that I would. I mean, I, it's incumbent on everybody who writes books, which again is a pretty selfish and indulgent thing to do to at least try to make it easier on the publisher (laughs) to be successful (laughs) at it. And I think part of that means picking a lane and sticking in it and just trying to go as fast as possible in that lane, but not swerving around and trying to do other things, which I think is, is very, very hard. And it's also impossible for almost everyone to be successful at it. And how do you feel about people moving into screenplays or adapting their work for other mediums and that kind of thing. Do you feel like that's shifting lanes or? No, I don't. Do you feel like that's shifting lanes? I haven't really done it. I mean, I've been involved in the adaptation of two of my books, but always in a very tangential way. I don't know how to write a screenplay and I wouldn't 
be so bold as to say I did. So I don't know. So what has your experience been? So The Darlings was adapted by HBO. And then right now we're adapting The Banker's Wife for Amazon. And in both cases, we've hired what I like to call a real writer. So an actual screenwriter. And I'm always on board as a consultant or something like that. And in both cases, always because I have a finance background. And so it's a sort of element of the writing that the screenwriter has said, I'm not comfortable writing about, you know, these sort of nuances about finance. And so they always bring me on to help out and in a very sort of spotty way. And then I insert myself just because it's fun to watch it get written, but I'm not doing the actual writing myself. So how far have these projects progressed? So The Darlings, I worked very closely with a screenwriter in that case, and we worked on it for about two years, and that was fun. And it went through a million iterations and ultimately was sold to a different channel, and so it took many forms, but it ultimately died. The Banker's Wife, I think that's progressing and have been told many times to never say it's you know, going to work out until you actually see it on your television screen. But it, I think it's moving forward in some kind of way that seems like it'll get on the air eventually. So, and the team behind The Banker's Wife is incredible. So it's, we have the the writer and the director. So the producer's goal in that case was to have an all-female production team, which I thought seemed kind of like a lofty and somewhat improbable goal, but they've actually done it, which I'm very impressed by. So the producers are all women. And then we pulled the writer-director team that did Homeland, who are both women, onto the project and one of the actresses who's attached is a producer. And so anyway, it's neat because thrillers don't often have female heroines, although yours do, but um, mostly they don't. So it's kind of fun because it's a kind of feminist thriller project and it's all kind of run by women. So it's been fun to be involved in. That's exciting. Yeah. What about you? Have you adapted any of yours? Have you done the screenwriting itself? I haven't. 10 years into it, I'm still amazed that a business exists like film and television where <laughs> people don't ever really say no and yes is always unclear. That in book publishing, if someone says yes, I will publish the book, the book gets published basically 100% of the time. There's no such thing as making a deal and then having the book <laughs> not happen unless someone involved is a bona fide lunatic and that person is frankly always the author. Publishers <laughs> never don't publish a book. Even when it's bad, they try to fix it and it gets to be as good as it can be and then it still gets published and maybe it's still a bad book. But people don't cancel books. They get published when deals get made. But in film and television, so many deals get made and so little progress can be made and lots of people can still consider it some type of a success because they get money. I don't consider it a success unless I'm sitting somewhere watching it on the screen. And that hasn't happened for me yet. So... The Expats has been in development of one sort or another for about a decade now. And Travelers, which was my third book, was under film option for three years and that lapsed and now it is being developed for television. So in no case have I had anything to do with it other than saying, yes, this sounds like a good deal. Thank you very much. And I don't want to because I feel like I would be in the way of the thing that Mm -hmm. I want to happen, which is for it to be on television. My goal is not for me to be a screenwriter, for me to work in the television business. My goal is for the thing to get on television or to get made in any way. And me writing the screenplay is definitely not going to help that because I don't know how to write screenplays. I've never even read one. And I, at this point in my life, don't think it's worthwhile for me to 
educate myself and do this. I want people who know what they're doing to do That's it. And exactly how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> so you're staying in your lane, it sounds like. I'm staying in my lane, okay. yeah. Do you think about the sort of potential for film or television projects when you're writing or when you're generating your ideas, or does that not even come up for you? It comes up a little bit in that I can't have recurring characters in book after book but after book. you do book. have and, recurring characters. Right, and those are books that I can't sell to anybody. <laughs> okay. And so I also have to publish books that have new characters. Otherwise, right. uh, they can't be developed for film or television. How does that work? I can write whatever I want, but nobody else can make a, a film or movie about the character from the expats except the people who are developing the expats. So they own the character. For film and television, I can continue to write books with that character, but those things can't be turned into filmed entertainment by any party other than the ones who have the rights to begin with. So that's a consideration, but it's not a big consideration for me because, again, I don't feel like I'm in the film or television business. I'm in the the book writing business, and what I want to do is write whatever is the best next book for me to write. And most recently, that was The Paris Diversion, which does have the same protagonist as my first book, The Expats. And I knew full and well going into it that I wouldn't be able to sell that to anybody, even though I think it would make a terrific movie. It would. But that can't happen with any party other than the original one. And that's disappointing to the person who makes a living selling film and television rights to books, my my agent who does that. But that's not really how I make my living. And so I don't really think about that. What I do think about which is partially because of film and television, but mostly because I want to write books this way, is I try to have every scene be very visual. Mm -hmm. That I want you as a reader to be able to see the room you're in, the street you're on, have the whole sensory experience of being in a place and seeing the action. And I focus a lot when I'm writing in trying to make sure that every scene is set that way and stage managed that way, that there's never a moment when the reader can't see what's going on. Do you consider that at all? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think, you know, in a larger way, what makes a good thriller often makes a good TV show or film. But yes, I see my books in a very visual way and I tend to plot them out in a sort of way where I'm thinking about it scene by scene. And so I think that naturally lends itself to adaptation. But your books are always, I feel like, location is really important to you and you always pick very glamorous, fun locations for your books. Do you do that intentionally or does it just end up that way? <laughs> I pick locations fairly intentionally. I don't know that they're necessarily glamorous. I Luxembourg, um, I, <laughs> which is possibly the most boring place in Europe, is, well, would you consider it glamorous? Well, you said on the back of my book that Geneva is <laughs> deathly boring, but um, <laughs> so I don't know. I guess I have, I'm maybe more boring than you are, but yeah, I think Luxembourg is really interesting. I mean, there's this whole, you know, the finance community there. I Maybe I'm just a big <laughs> nerd, but I think it's fascinating. Uh-huh. There are a lot of people hiding money in Luxembourg and it's very beautiful and it's, you know, European and you can travel to many glamorous places from there. I don't really know what happens there. It's true. It's very attractive. And for 48 hours, it's really a very compelling <laughs> place. But then the 49th hour, you realize you've seen everything. And we lived there for a year and a half, which is not that long. But it was long enough to, I mean, you're from New York City and I'm from New York City. And this is a big place. And there's no way to see all of New York City. But there is a way to see all of Luxembourg. And I'm not kidding when I tell you that it happens in two days. And so that was a strange experience to me. It was also not really a city in the way that Mm -hmm. 
we're used to cities. It doesn't have a mass transit system. It doesn't have lots of things that cities have. There's no good place to get dumplings. And we went, as a result, to lots of other places. And I didn't have a job when we lived in Luxembourg. We moved there for my wife's job, and I took it upon myself to adopt this second or first job that was not really a job, which was for us to travel all the time. Yeah. We still have twin boys there. They were four at the time and a dog, and we wanted to go places that could accommodate the whole family, including the twins and the dog, and we usually wanted to do it in a car, and we wanted to stay in a hotel that was in the center but not too expensive in a room that could fit all of us but not the king suite. So it was finding places to go and ways to be there and things for the kids to do and places for us to eat became something that I did constantly. There was never a moment in the year and a half that we lived in Luxembourg when I wasn't in the process of planning two or three weekend trips or long weekends or weeks renting apartments here and there. And my wife's job was demanding, but it was on very strange hours. And she could also do it from Barcelona or something. Mm -hmm. Like it was a very strange experience that we had of just driving around Europe with these kids and this dog looking for culture. And it was fascinating. And it was, we very often went to Paris. It was very, very close. By car, it was an easy drive. By train, it was two hours even. And I would go there sometimes just by myself for 36 hours to get away from tending to the children, children. which I frankly, (laughs) I had a hard time doing after I, I didn't, I hadn't done it ever full time. And then we moved abroad and there's no culture in Luxembourg of having other people take care of your children. And I didn't want to do that anyway. If you had children, you took care of them in in ways that were even codified by the educational system. On Wednesdays, school is half day, which means that somebody needs to be home with the children Wednesday at 12.01, which makes it hard for somebody in the family to have a job. And in my household, that wasn't that big of a problem because I didn't have a job. But in lots of families, I could see that it would be a problem. It's a real disincentive to having a two-career household. But in any case, I sometimes wanted to take a break from the children. So I would get on the TGV on Friday night and not come back till Sunday afternoon and leave my wife with the children. That sounds delightful. It was, yes. (laughs) And so I got to know Paris pretty well, which is why I ended up writing a book about it, even though I never lived there. I was in the city a lot over the past 15 years. I was always interested that your first novel, The Protagonist is a Woman, but it seems like she was sort of the homemaker in your in your novel. So you sort of, did you identify with her experience? Kate Moore is the protagonist of that book, is somebody who I invented to be an alter ego of me. But my experience of being a dad in Luxembourg was very, very abnormal. That when I went to pick up the kids at school every day at three o'clock, there were about 150 parents picking up kids. And no exaggeration here, three of us were men. And the other two guys, frankly, gave me the creeps. And that's a very, <laughs> very low they percentage. They didn't have children at that school. <laughs> you should write a memoir about this. Well, it was, it was very strange. And in New York, it, certainly there's not parity in the schoolyard, but there are a lot of men picking up kids at yeah. any given school. Yeah. Not so in Luxembourg, that the people who are home with kids were women. And the people who are in the banks, working in finance, the accountants and the lawyers, those were men. And that's why people had come to Luxembourg for this very specific, very specific, carefully delineated family dynamic Mm -hmm. of women who'd given up their careers 
for their husbands' careers, moving to this place because the taxes were low mm-hmm. and the job prospects were high and the healthcare was free. And I didn't want to write a book that was about that experience of being a fish out of water, of being a man completely surrounded by women, which I thought would be very unrelatable to most people. That's an experience that was very specifically mine, but I don't think a lot of people have had that experience. And I didn't want to write a book that would be so disorienting or alienating to people. On the other hand, I felt like this idea of somebody who gives up their career to follow their spouses Mm -hmm. is something we all recognize when the person giving up a career is a woman. Is a woman, right, of course. You did that so well. And it's in the expat, the sort of expat component was fascinating also. Well, thank you. So, I'm sorry to have a bad mouth, Geneva. I don't know how much time you spent in Geneva. <laughs> Mine no, was I just a, no a long weekend. Yeah. I, my, I have family that lives there. But I think it's interesting for the same reason I think Luxembourg is interesting, which is that a lot of people do move there specifically for this job, there is this sort of odd community of people that have moved there and feel kind of dislocated from their real lives, who I think are there often, you know, for two years or five years or whatever it is. And there are often women that don't work while they're there. Their husbands make a lot of money and their husbands work in these sort of very intense and often very secretive jobs. And I I find that sort of inherently fascinating. So my uncle lives there and his whole world is this sort of expat community where everyone's come from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know, I always thought that intrigued me about Geneva and sort of also intrigues me about Luxembourg. I was intrigued by the similarities between the expat experience and the experience of being a parent, mm-hmm. that of leaving behind everything that you knew beforehand and the person you were and the the clothes you wore and the things you did on a day-to-day basis and the friends you had and what you did with those friends Once you have a kid, you leave so much of that behind. And if you're then the person who's home with the kids full time, you've left all of it behind. And then who are you? And what is it you do? And when you people ask, what do you do? How do you describe that? And all of that to me was fascinating. fascinating. Yeah, that is. I love that parallel. And that's why I wanted to write this book about expats also being this woman who was all of a sudden home with little kids after having this really demanding, Mm -hmm. stressful career that was no longer a part of her life. And that was the thing that she missed immensely. And my career was very different. It was not that stressful and it was not that demanding and I never killed anybody, but still (laughs) I missed it immensely. It's the only thing that I'd been as an adult for 20 years. I was a New York City book editor and that was a big part of my identity. And then all of a sudden I was not that. I also didn't live in the place where my parents were, where my brother was, where my friends that I'd gone to college, like my whole life was in New York and I no longer had any of it. And meanwhile, I was home with these really strange little human beings (laughs) and their various needs and trying to speak French. And the whole thing was just so foreign and not just the foreignness of it, but the everythingness was foreign to me. Do you find that at all being at home with children? You have little kids. Yes, no, I've never heard it compared to being an expat. It's so true. It's so disorienting. My life changed so rapidly from the time, you know, when I was, I guess, just turning 30. I was on partner track at a New York City law firm, and that was my whole life. And I did that, you know, 100 hours a week. I defined myself very much by my career. And then within the span of a year, The Darlings was published. I had sold it to HBO, and I was leaving to go work there. And then I got married and 
got pregnant with my daughter very quickly. So, wow. That yeah, was a big was, year. It was a big yeah. year. But yes, it's it's totally wildly disorienting. And I remember, you know, my mom saying, she, my mom had had a career. She worked in finance and then she got pregnant with me and she never went back. And she said to me, you know, you're going to find however well organized you are, however intelligent you are, however well prepared you feel you are, there's nothing more disorienting than parenthood. And she said, I used to just hold you and say, I have an MBA. Why can't I do this better? I just can't. Why, why won't you stop crying? But it's true. It's so disorienting. <laughs> my second book is actually a comedy about parenthood because I just had to kind of wrap my head around the change in my life. So my second book is about a lawyer, a very type A male lawyer at a firm who gets fired in a fairly spectacular way and ends up having to stay at home with his son for the summer as a single parent. And that was very much about my experience of, you know, suddenly going from being someone who defined themselves as a lawyer to becoming just a parent and nothing else. So I dealt with that by writing a book. Why did you make that protagonist a man? For the same reason you did. I mean, my experience was I always worked in very male-dominated industries. So I worked in finance and then I worked in mergers and acquisitions and I was always surrounded by men. And there are so many books that are so well-written about motherhood and, you know, working motherhood and juggling careers and, you know, the sort of how does she do it all kind of books. And I actually didn't really feel like there were that many books about you know, sort of type A workaholics who really don't know how to be parents and find that experience. They feel like a fish out of water. I feel like women in books often immediately embrace parenthood as this magical, marvelous thing that they were meant to do biologically. And I didn't really feel that way, to be honest. It was a really hard transition for me. And so I don't know, I guess the character that I felt like approximated my experience the most was this very intense type A lawyer guy who had kind of foisted all the child-rearing duties onto his wife. And and I, I didn't want to write about someone who had just become a parent and had a baby at home because babies are boring. So <laughs> I wanted it to be a five-year-old child who was funny and interesting. And so to do that, he obviously had to have a stay-at-home wife to take care of the child before this catastrophe in his life. So anyway, that's how I came up with Charlie. How much of your life seeps into your fiction? A lot. Um, I mean, a lot. I, you know, I'm a write what you know person. My first book, The Family, was from New York and they grew up in the Upper East Side and the daughter was a lawyer and the father was not a financial criminal, but worked <laughs> in an adjacent industry to my, my father. Um, so a lot. I mean, I, I respect people immensely that can do tons of research and, you know, bring to life 16th century China or whatever. But I'm not one of those people. I feel like there are things I know about and can write about in an authentic way and things I can't. And so I tend to put a lot of myself and my life into my books but maybe that just makes me very narcissistic and a little bit lazy. So, um, <laughs> what do you not you? do research because of laziness or because, I, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'll, I don't want you to dig your own hole in this. I, I will <laughs> Give me a admit second that. to think of my answer. I had an experience a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago, before I was writing fiction. I used to go to, I still go to book events and bookstores, other authors' events. And at one of these author spent so much time talking about how much she loves the research aspect of it and that she'll research for a year or two before she even starts to write the first sentence of a novel. And after she gave that talk about her research, she then proceeded to read from a novel a couple of pages 
that were basically a recitation of facts that she had gleaned Mm -hmm. from other research. And I had this epiphany that this is what I hate about fiction, (laughs) is this is exactly the type of book I don't want to read and definitely will never want to write. When I want nonfiction, I read nonfiction. When I want fiction, I want it to be about characters and Mm -hmm. story and people whose lives and adventures are more exciting than mine. I don't want it to be about other people's facts. I don't want it to be <laughs> gun ballistics. I don't I don't want it to be many things. I want facts only there to support mm-hmm. the story and character. And so I find that the more research I do in a book, and sometimes I find I've fallen down a rabbit hole of wanting to learn a lot about mm-hmm. a particular something, and I end up jamming a bunch of facts into my manuscript, mostly because I want that week that I spent reading those books to not have been wasted. <laughs> Absolutely. And so I, I end up with three paragraphs of facts about something, and by the time I read a draft of the manuscript a few months later, I realize that all of that is garbage, mm-hmm. and I delete probably all of it, that of hundreds or thousands of facts that I will research for a book, maybe five of those will end up in the book and they will be like a half sentence each at most. I just don't, I don't like to populate my novels with facts because I don't really like to read novels that are populated with facts. That's a good epiphany. I find I have to wind down my research so I don't bore people to death with financial details. This has been so much fun for me, and thank you so much for doing this. It was a true pleasure. No, it's been my pleasure. For conversations you can't ignore, come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.